you'll want to get out your message outline so that you can follow along. This is Worry and the Kingdom. We're at the end of Matthew chapter 6 today. As we go through the Sermon on the Mount, and this is a different kind of a passage, so I'm taking it a little bit differently. And to be honest, it was a very long week. So uh, much of what you hear this morning will have come from uh, Dr. Tim Keller. So all the good stuff is from him. All the other stuff is from me. So just keep that in mind. If you turn to the end of Matthew chapter 6 in your Bibles, you can look on uh, in the uh, outline. And please listen carefully to these words of our Lord. Uh, for they are his words to us, and they're his words for this day. Let's read beginning at verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. It's not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these, but if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. You have brought us to this amazing gospel to learn more about your son, Jesus. We ask you this morning to give us the grace to understand there's somewhat hard teaching here, and it's hard not just because Jesus has the ability to say much in so few words. But it's hard because our wills aren't easily bent to obedience. We want to listen to our hearts and not yours. We love to worry and we live in our anxieties. And Jesus doesn't want either in our lives. So help us to consider what it means to follow you and not ourselves. And by your Spirit, open this gospel to us and help us to see Jesus. And as always, for this we need your grace. Give us the desire to learn from you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. There is an old story that I've come across several times and I think I might have used before, but I'm now old, so I don't remember. Anyway, I thought it fit the topic for today, so I decided to use it again. It was written by a homemaker, a woman who had just had it. A little different today. Last week I had spotlights in my face. Today I'm in the shadows. So, anyways, perhaps some of you uh, could identify with this story. The lady writes, not too long ago I had one of those days. 
I was feeling pressure from a writing deadline. I had company arriving in a couple days, and the toilet was clogged. I went to the bank, and the trainee teller processing my deposit had to start over three times. I swung by the supermarket to pick up a few things, and the lines were serpentine. By the time I got home, I was frazzled and sweaty and in a hurry to get something on the table for dinner. Deciding on Campbell's cream of mushroom soup, I grabbed a can opener, cranked open the can, and remembered I had forgotten to buy milk at the store. Nixed the soup idea. Setting the can aside, I went to plan B, which was leftover baked beans. I grabbed the Tupperware container from the fridge, popped the seal, took a look, and groaned. My husband isn't a picky eater, but even he won't eat baked beans that look like caterpillars. Really frustrated, now I decided on a menu that promised to be as foolproof as it was nutrition-free. Hot dogs and potato chips. Retrieving a brand new bag of chips from the cupboard, I grabbed the cellophane and gave a hearty pull. Nothing happened. The bag didn't open, I tried again. Nothing happened. Took a breath, doubled my muscle, and gave the bag a hearty wrestle. And with a loud pop, the cellophane suddenly gave way ripping wide from top to bottom. The chips flew sky high. I was left holding the bag, and it was empty. It was the last straw. I let out a blood-curdling scream. I can't take it anymore. My husband heard my unorthodox cry for help, and within minutes... <laughs> he was standing at the doorway to the kitchen where he surveyed the damage, an open can of soup, melting groceries, moldy baked beans, and one quivering wife standing ankle deep in potato chips. My husband did the most helpful thing he could think of at the moment. He took a flying leap, landing flat-footed in the pile of chips. And then he began to stomp and dance and twirl, grinding those chips into the linoleum in the process. I stared. I fumed. Pretty soon I was working to stifle a smile. Eventually I had to laugh and finally I decided to join him. I too took a leap onto the chips and I danced. Now I'll be the first to admit my husband's response was not the one I was looking for. But the truth is it was just what I needed. I didn't need a cleanup crew as much as an attitude adjustment and the laughter from that rather funky moment provided just that. So now I have a question for you and it's simply this. Has God ever stomped on your chips? I know that in my life there's been plenty of times when I've gotten myself into frustrating situations and I've cried out with help all the time hoping God would show up with a celestial broom and just clean up the mess. But often what happens is that God dances on my chips, answering my prayer in a completely different manner than I expected but in the manner that was best for me. And sometimes I can see that right away, that God's response is best. Sometimes I have to wait weeks or even months before I understand how and why God answered a prayer the way he did. And there are some situations that years later, I'm still trying to understand. And I figure God will fill me in sooner or later, either this side of heaven or beyond. Do I trust him? even when he's answering my prayer in a way that's completely different from my expectations, even when he's dancing and stomping instead of sweeping and mopping, can I embrace what he's offering? Can I let his joy adjust my attitude? Or am I going to stand on the sidelines and sulk?
Am I willing to learn the steps of the dance that he's dancing with my needs in mind? I'll be honest with you, sometimes I sulk. Sometimes I dance. I'm working on doing more of the latter than the former. And I guess the older I get, the more I realize he really does know what he's doing. He loves me, and I can trust him, even when the chips are down. I love that story. I especially love it today because we live in a world of worry today. Our society, our culture, markets worry. However, our individual lives are filled with worry and anxiety as well. Everyone here worries about something. Everyone here has to face anxiety in one form or another, in one way or another. It's common to life. And we're back in Matthew 6, and we're looking at the Sermon on the Mount, and today we come to Jesus' command not to be anxious. Three times he says, therefore, do not be anxious. Quick question. How does anybody have the audacity to command us not to be anxious? I mean, who wants to be anxious? Nobody gets up in the morning and says, I think I'm really going to be anxious today. I can't wait. It's not a very voluntary thing. So why would Jesus command us? If we look carefully, we'll see he's not commanding us in a military kind of way. I mean, Jesus isn't coming and saying, buck up, what are you anxious about? Cut it out, stop it, whistle a happy tune. He doesn't do anything like that. I would do that. I'm quick to say, suck it up, be tough, deal with it, get over it. Life is tough and then you die. I mean, for years our family motto was, get up, you're fine. That's because I'm a jerk. But Jesus isn't. Instead, if you look carefully, you'll see that Jesus gets underneath and explains to us the why, and he reasons with us. And there's a sense in which he's doing surgery. And he says, anxiety is wrong. And if you sit still and let me do my surgery in you, if you listen to my instructions, I can get it out of you. I can remove it. So there is an obedience issue here, but at the same time, there's this sense that Jesus says, I'm going to show you how to get underneath the surface and how you can get underneath the surface and deal with anxiety. Three times Jesus says, therefore, do not be anxious. But first we have to ask, what is anxiety? What is anxiety? You notice there wasn't a lot of time of this week, so there are no blanks in your bulletin. So you're getting over, so next week there'll be like twice as many. Make up for it. What is anxiety? That's a good question. It's actually easier to describe than it is to define. Time magazine uh, not long ago said it's the most prevailing quality of our modern culture. And they've had a cover story on this issue for each of the last three years. And if you go back through the history of Time Magazine, you can go to their website and do a search on anxiety. And over their approximately 100 years that they've been around, anxiety has come up in their articles 5,000 times. Articles dealing with worry 
and anxiety and stress. I think the reason for that sort of constant focus is that anxiety is more than a psychological thing. It has psychological aspects, it has physical aspects, and it has philosophical aspects to it. Psychology, uh, psychologically, anxiety, of course, can be focused on a specific danger. But anxiety can be this debilitating general condition that's not really focused on any particular cause. And the best way I can describe it for people who live with anxiety, it's like having the constant baseline from Jaws running through your life. You know, you're looking around for the fin because you know it's there somewhere. You know something's going wrong. It's called neurotic, and it's a frightening thing. And it really can characterize our whole life psychologically. But more than that, anxiety also has a physical aspect, and physically we call it stress. And we know that. We know our bodies have this automatic nervous system, so when there's danger, uh, our bodies suddenly get triggered, our system gets triggered by the danger, by the anxiety. We begin to pump adrenaline and pump in all sorts of things that get us ready for what's called fight or flight. We're ready for dramatic, drastic action. And so when danger appears, our body has a way of getting us ready to do something. But if you find you're constantly living with stress and anxiety, that every day, day in and day out, you're living with perceived dangers, financial dangers, professional dangers, relationship dangers, your body's always being triggered, you're always in that condition, eventually you will literally burn up. And you'll burn out. Ulcers, hypertension, high blood pressure. Anxiety has a physical aspect to it. Anxiety also has a philosophical aspect to it. The German existential philosophers, I tell you who they are, but I can't pronounce their names. They talked about angst. But I was looked up angst and I found an even better word. They talked about geworfenheit. Oh, that's a great word. Geworfenheit. Literally, it means thrownness. A feeling of being thrown out into the world, unprepared, unready, with no rhyme or reason to anything. If you think about it, modern context, read an article end of last year, end of December, about a little girl in southeast D.C. sitting at a table on Christmas Eve and having a stray bullet tearing up through the ceiling, up through the floor, right into the room, hitting her in the head, killing her uh, instantly right there on the table Christmas Eve. And when you read stories like that, and then you start looking for stories like that, and they're in the Washington Post most every day, you begin to feel this anxiety that's more philosophical than psychological. This sense that there's no rhyme or reason to things. And it can be so prevailing. And anxiety can and does affect every part of our lives, mind, will, and emotion. But what is it? I think when Jesus says, do not worry about tomorrow, at the very end of this passage, he's summing up everything else that he said. Worry is concern about the potential, not the actual. Worry is concern about that which we can't control. 
And the essence of anxiety is the desire to control what we can't control. That's why we're anxious. We feel the need for control in an area where there's no possibility of control. And that causes anxiety. Now that's what it is. Anxiety is the will to control the uncontrollable. I don't know if that's in the outline or not, but you should probably write that down. Anxiety is the will to control the uncontrollable. And if that's what it is, where does it come from? If that's what it is, where does it come from? The Bible, as usual, gives us far and away the most coherent answer. Jesus Christ, if you look carefully, you'll see in a very general way, he's saying the source of anxiety is the human will to exercise power. The fact is, we want the power that God has. And anxiety comes from that. He says, for example, verse 27, And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? But that's the point. We want to be able to add time. We want. He says, you can't do that. Well, we want to do that. We want the power that God has. And Jesus is saying, isn't life more than a food or drink? And which by being anxious, uh, which of you can add a single hour to your span of life? And what he's saying is essentially this. Listen, who's been keeping your life going all these years anyway? What are you worried about uh, uh, now? Why are you worried about it now? You know, when, when the doctor comes in with bad news or the boss comes in with bad news, suddenly we get anxious because we feel like we're out of control. But it's the threat that reveals the illusion that we're living under. And the illusion is that we felt up to now that we actually were in control. And we're getting anxious because now we feel like we're getting out of control. But that's not true. The threat just reveals our real true condition, which is that you've always been out of control. You've always been vulnerable. You've never been keeping your life going. See, danger or threat which triggers anxiety is not showing us this new precarious condition, but at the deepest level, it's revealing what we knew all along. We've never been in charge. We're not in control. And Jesus says, we're anxious because we disbelieve and dislike the fact that we're totally dependent on the supporting power of God. And we don't like it. And we're afraid of it. That's what anxiety is. Biblically, though, there's a wonderful truth running underneath this. Pascal, the great Christian philosopher, has a very interesting statement. You know, one of the great things about Christianity is even when it's telling you what's wrong with you, it tells you in such a positive way because it shows you where it's coming from. Pascal put it like this. He says, the greatness of man is so evident that it is even proved by his wretchedness. For who is unhappy at not being a king except a deposed king? You understand what he's saying? The Bible says the reason we're anxious is because we need to be in control. The reason we want to be in control is because we were made originally to be kings and queens on earth. The Bible says we're built to be stewards. Now, steward is the number one slave in a great house, a great mansion. The steward's the slave with all the authority. 
steward's a slave to the master, but to everyone else, he's the king. And when a steward is slave to his master, dependent, loving, obedient, he grows in his authority. That's the kind of king we were built to be. But the Bible tells us, through and through, starting in the book of Genesis, that we didn't like to be in charge of everything but God. We wanted to be in charge of everything. We wanted to be our own masters. And in trying to become more than human, we became less. Trying to become more than ourselves, we became less than ourselves. So how do we respond to this need for control, which comes from the fact that we were built to be kings and queens. We were built for glory. We respond now the way we responded then. We're no different than Adam and Eve. We try to get more power and more control, and the more we try to get power and control and be our own masters, the less powerful we feel. We're insecure because we want power. The more we want power, the more we seek to control our lives, the more we resent the fact that God is actually in control of our lives. And so the more insecure we get. Anxiety comes from that will to exercise power. Reminded a great story of Martin Luther. He has all the best stories. Um, one day he looked at his good friend Philip Melanchthon, and Philip was worried and full of anxiety about how things were going, you know, that whole persecution thing. And, uh, and instead of Luther uh, acting like me and saying, buck up, suck it up, be tough, he did surgery. He went underneath and said to Philip, let Philip cease to rule the world. You know why you're anxious, Philip? You want to be in charge. You're trying to be in charge. Let Philip cease to rule the world. We feel we have to assert ourselves, and anxiety comes when we try. What's anxiety? The need for control of the uncontrollable. And where does it come from? Our basic essential nature is kings and queens, which we're trying to express by being masters of our own life, which we're not. So that leads to the third question, and the most important question this morning, which is, what do we do about it? You say, Dave, this is all very interesting, but in fact, it's making me feel even more anxious. So what do I do? And again, Jesus would never say, buck up, be tough. He tells you what to do. Essentially, in this passage, he says, if you're full of anxiety, psychological, physical, philosophical, whatever, there are two things you're doing wrong. And therefore, if you want to remove the anxiety from your life, there are two things you have to do right. And the two things you're doing wrong are wrong thinking and wrong priorities. Wrong thinking and wrong priorities. Here's what we mean. First, wrong thinking. Again and again, Jesus says, verse 26, look at the birds of the air. Verse 28, consider the lilies of the field. The word that's used here is a word that means ponder or think. And Jesus essentially is saying, if you're anxious, you're not thinking. He says, do not be anxious, but consider this. Consider that. Do you see how critical that is? After all, what do you think faith is? Do you think faith is the absence of thinking? Do you think faith is just closing your eyes and jumping off? Faith is more than bungee jumping. Faith is not saying, this doesn't make any sense to me, but it doesn't matter. 
Is that how Jesus talks? Not at all. Not at all. Jesus is saying faith begins with thinking. He says it's anxiety that is the absence of thinking, anxiety, fear, and stress. See, when you're sitting and listening to your heart run off at the mouth, that's what makes you scared. Your heart starts to ramble. It just starts to react to situations. And it runs at the mouth the way you do and I do. If you don't think before you speak. And so you're lying in bed and your heart's just saying, how bad is it going to be? How awful is it going to be? What am I going to do about this? And you're listening to your heart instead of talking to your heart. And listening to your heart is what Jesus says brings the anxiety. Instead, you need to stop and use your mind to talk to your heart. Wait, look at the facts. Consider this, consider that. You argue, you talk. What do you think faith is? Friends, faith is not just passing peaceful thoughts through your mind and it's not turning your mind off. Faith is a position of confidence towards the world based on what God has said in his word. If you don't believe that God has spoken in his word, then there's absolutely no way for you to deal with your anxiety, period. Defy anyone to tell me there's another way. But if you understand that he has spoken, and you take that and you use it to talk to yourself, to argue with yourself, Jesus here gives you two great arguments. The first argument is, Jesus says, go to the Word and see that God is in charge. First argument, verse 26, look at the birds of the air argument. The second argument, verse 28, consider the lilies of the field argument. And you know how to use these two. I don't want anybody to leave here today without knowing how. Because the first argument, the birds of the air argument, is a providence of God argument. The second is a love of God argument. In the first argument, Jesus says, consider the birds. God is in charge of them. God gives them what they need. You don't have the power to even add one minute to your life. He's saying God has all the power. God is in charge. God's sovereign. God's a God of providence. You know how to use that on your heart. Now, to the average American, providence is the capital of Rhode Island. Or it's a university that used to play basketball well when they had Louisville's coach. My March Madness reference. But the word providence, from which the namers of the capital and the university got it, comes from provide. Providence. The doctrine of the providence of God is saying that everything that happens to you is part of God's plan, that everything you have is part of God's provision. Ephesians 1.11, In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. Romans 8.28, We know that all those, uh, for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Jesus says there is absolutely no way no way that you could possibly deal with anxiety unless you believe that. Well, somebody says, well, that doesn't make me feel any better. I feel like I'm a puppet. Everything's predetermined. It doesn't matter what I do. And if you jump to that conclusion, then you've moved away from the biblical do doctrine of providence to this pagan notion of fate. And they're not the same thing. 
Let me give you two great examples, both from the Scriptures. First, Acts 2, verse 23. Here Peter is talking to the people of Jerusalem. And he says, Christ was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. He says, listen carefully, when Jesus died, wasn't that death foreordained? Wasn't it planned? He says he was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And yet, even though you were destined to kill him, even though it was purposed that you would kill him, it was still wicked that you killed him. And what God is saying here, what Peter is saying, is fairly easy to see in a sense. He's saying the wickedness of your heart, you're responsible for. Your choices, you're responsible for. God doesn't make you wicked. But your wickedness can't thwart God's plan. God can superintend and overcome your wickedness to work out his perfect plan. That's why Joseph could talk to his brothers who sold him into slavery. He went down to Egypt, was almost put to death, but eventually becomes powerful, and later on he saves his life, his family um, from famine. And he says to his brothers, he looks at them, Genesis 50, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. What's that mean? Joseph said, God led you to sell me into slavery. It was part of his plan. It looked terrible. It looked awful. But it's part of his plan. He intended it for good. Does that mean, brothers, you didn't do anything wrong? Couldn't help yourself. It was fate. Of course not. Joseph doesn't mean that. His brothers knew that he didn't mean that because they wept. They repented. You see, they were responsible for their choice. And yet God infallibly works out his own counsel. And Jesus says, until you understand that, until you believe that, it's impossible to deal with anxiety. That's the reason there's a certain sense which we can say all things work together for good uh, for those that love God. Do you know what that means? There's a certain sense in which when you finally give yourself over to God and say, I trust you, you begin to realize that everything that's happening, everything that's happening is happening for your good. Everything is happening for your good. The minute you finally say, I'm not going to be in the center of the universe anymore. I'm not going to demand an explanation for everything anymore. I'm not going to try and stay in control of my own life then and only then. Are you truly willing to say, Lord, you know what's best? Paul writes in Philippians, Philippians 4, 6, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. It means whenever you ask God for something, thank Him ahead of time for whatever it is that He sends, even though you don't know what it is that He's sending. Well, how can you do that? It means having the conviction that God's not going to give you anything that's wrong or bad, even if it seems wrong or bad or hard or difficult. You know, when I was a little kid, and even when I was a bigger kid, my parents were always ruining my life. They were always ruining my life. They are always saying stuff like, stop swallowing those rocks. Don't stick that fork into that electrical outlet. You know, these people didn't know how to live. They were ruining my life. And I wasn't able to understand until I got older 
I realized they were saving my life every day. And some people say, if I really trust God like that, Dave, if I really give myself to Him like you say, He may start to tell me things I don't want to do. He may start to give me things I don't want to have. He may start to command me things I don't want to obey. Of course He'll tell you things you don't want to do. What's the use of having a king if you're wise enough and smart enough to do it all yourself? But you have a king and the king is there because you're not wise enough and smart enough to know how to control your own life. Abraham didn't want to give up Isaac. Moses didn't want to go to Pharaoh. And Jesus didn't want to go to the cross. But his will is wise and right and good. And the people who submit to his will will spend the next billion years thanking him that he had it, that he gave it to him. In the words of C.S. Lewis's beaver, of course he's not safe. Who said anything about him being safe? But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Now, the other thing you have to do is consider the lilies of the field argument. The lilies of the field argument is different. First argument, birds of the air, providence of God. That's to say he's in control Who else could I trust but him? But the second argument is the love of God argument. And Jesus says, verse 32, your heavenly father knows that you need them all. Your heavenly father knows what you need. And that's where you start to argue God's love into your heart. Goes like this. Listen, heart. You know he loves you more than you imagine. You know that he knows all the hairs on your head and how many tears have come down your cheeks. You know that. You know that he didn't spare his own son. How is he going to fail to give us anything that we need? You argue with yourself. You begin to realize anxiety is essentially a daily Facebook message to God saying, I don't think you have my best interests in mind. That's what anxiety is. Anxiety is essentially saying, Father, you emptied heaven of your greatest treasure and you sacrificed your son voluntarily for me, but I'm not sure you know how to arrange my week. And when you realize what you're saying, you begin to realize how much you're offending His abounding love and amazing grace. There's no way you or I would put up with somebody, wouldn't put up with a kid or a friend who continually trampled on your love the way you and I trample on God's love. And so talk to your heart. He's my Father. He loves me. He knows what I need. The second major issue here with anxiety is wrong priorities. First thing, wrong thinking. Two arguments about that. Providence of God, love of God. But the second thing is wrong priorities. And the wrong priorities are pretty simple because Jesus gives us the right priorities here in verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things will be added to you. You know what that means? Maybe you remember the story in the Bible of Mary and Martha. Jesus came to their house and Martha ran around and literally it says she was anxious. A true confession here, I love Martha's. Nothing would happen in the church if we didn't have Martha's. (laughs) Amen. There you go, good Presbyterian. Back row. uh... But here... 
Jesus says she's anxious, doing many, many things. And it's the same word that Jesus uses here in Matthew chapter 6. Mary sat at Jesus' feet and Jesus comes to Martha, Luke 10. Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. Saying, Martha, sit down and focus on me. And what Jesus is saying is worry is the result of having the wrong priorities. If Jesus is the center of your life, there will be no anxiety. If your profession, if your relationship, if your material comfort, if your money, if anything else is in the center, if anything else is more important than Christ, then you're going to be torn up with anxiety. And most of us are because most of us struggle with keeping Jesus at the center of our life. There is more idolatry in this room than we could list on a piece of paper. If we were truly honest, it is a constant daily struggle to keep Jesus front and center. I don't want to make it sound like this is easy. I know it's not easy. But if anything else is more important than Christ, then you're going to struggle with anxiety. Your fears are like breadcrumbs. And if you follow them, they'll lead you to the house of the witch. Or in this case, the root of your anxiety. A little literary reference for you literary types. Our anxieties come from having things, from the lack, from not having things in the proper place. And Jesus is bluntly asking you to put him first. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. It means your prayer life. It means your fellowship with other Christians. It means missions. It means ministry. It means your growth in grace. If all that comes first, Jesus says, I can guarantee you your other concerns would go because you'll be thinking about me and trusting me. Queen Elizabeth, not the current one, the second one, but the first Queen Elizabeth once told the man she wanted him to go on a voyage to the New World because she needed his skills on this voyage to make it successful. And the man looked at her and said, I have a small business and it's floundering and if I go on this voyage, my business will surely sink. And the first Queen Elizabeth, as only she could, said, My dear friend, you mind my business and I'll mind your business. And immediately all the fear was gone. Because here's Queen Elizabeth, a monarch of absolute power and wealth. If I mind her business, she will mind my business. What a great deal. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. It's the same deal. Right thinking, right priorities. Wrong thinking, wrong priorities. Listen, there's two kinds of people here today. There are some of you who have certainly believed in Jesus Christ and have received Him as Savior. It's one thing to put faith in Him and enter the kingdom. It's another thing to walk by faith. Tim Keller, again, all the good stuff comes from him. This morning, anyways. Not the funny stuff. The man doesn't smile. Um... <laughs> I hope he never listens to this. <laughs> he tells a story about meeting with a guy. He was talking with this guy. We were in a counseling uh, situation. And he's counseling this man. And he says, do you trust in Jesus Christ to save you? Do you believe your sins are covered? Do you believe in that? And the man says, yes, yes, I certainly believe that. I certainly trust him. And then Tim said, do you trust him enough to obey what he says in his word about not marrying someone who's not a believer? Do you trust him enough to obey what he says and to wait for a spiritually mature person to marry? 
silence. See, it's one thing to believe in Him. It's another thing to believe Him. It's one thing to believe in Him. It's another thing to believe Him. Lots of us believe in God. But do you believe God? Jesus is saying, trust me. Not just believe in me. Trust me. Listen to what I say. Obey me. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things will be added to you. There are some of you possibly sitting here saying, you know, I know I've never really put my faith in Christ the way you're saying. I've never received Him as this kind of Savior and Lord. I've never put Him in the center of my life. And you may be saying, I'd like to, but I've never been able to believe. I wish I could, but I've, I've never really been able to believe. Listen, there's only two doctrines on which to base your life. Only two. Either you're competent to run your life or God is. Either you're competent to run your life or God is. And the problem is when you say, I can't believe, it's not really a fair statement. Your problem is you refuse to doubt yourself because you think you're competent to run your life. And you're afraid to give your life fully to Christ because you think you're competent to run your own life. That's an act of absolute blind faith because there's no evidence for it and you know it. It's a leap against the evidence that you refuse to doubt yourself and that's why you can't believe. Don't tell me you can't believe in God. What you mean is I refuse to doubt myself even though I have plenty of evidence to doubt myself. And I don't care how successful you are, even the most successful people are making a total mess of some part of their life. Come to Him. Jesus Christ knew what it was to trust God. In the wilderness, the devil came and said, turn these stones into bread. And he didn't do it. Why? He continued to depend on God. He wouldn't take matters into his own hands. He wouldn't decide to disobey God and get control because he was faithful. He died as our substitute and took the punishment that we deserve for our will to exercise power and maintain control. Believe him. God is in charge. God is sovereign. God is a God of providence. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Trust Him. Not just believe in Him. Trust Him. Trust Christ. Listen to what He says. Obey Him. God is a God of love. Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? And that means today that you can go to him and know that if you believe not just in him, but believe him, he's your substitute your sins are wiped away and you put yourself in the hands of the Father who knows what you need. Proverbs 18.10 reminds us the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and are safe. And those who are safe are not anxious. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank You that You've given us a King, a true King, a real King. 
Thank you that this king loves us and cares for us. Open our eyes that we can see our sin and all the ways in which we trust ourselves instead of trusting in him. Help us to see how we put ourselves first, how we try to exercise power and keep control. Help us to see how we allow anxiety to push out our faith and worry to keep us from trust. We indeed are people of little faith. So grant us greater faith to trust Christ and believe him from this day forward. And help us to know and believe that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever.